If you're like me, when you fly to Greece, you start in Athens and then you work your way south along the Peloponnesian Peninsula or heading out to the islands. We're joined right now on Travel with Rick Steves by three Greek guides to convince us to head north. Anastasia Gaitanou is from Thessaloniki, the main city of northern Greece. Apostolos Duras shows visitors the modern side of Greece from his home base in Athens. And that's where tour guide Filippos Kanakaras lives. He also directs a small theater company. Today, they're here to guide us to the sites of northern Greece. Great to have you with us as we talk about the wonders of northern Greece. Anastasia, you live in Thessaloniki, the region's greatest city. All the travelers seem to head south to Athens, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, and the islands when they go to Greece. What are they missing? In Thessaloniki. Oh, God, a lot. It is the second largest city of Greece, 1.3 million. It's exactly on the waterfront. It has a beautiful historical center. We do not have that traditional architecture that you find in the central part of Europe. It's completely different. But it is a city that has existed since the 4th century BC. So as you're walking through the modern-day center and then you turn around a corner, then suddenly there are Roman ruins in front of you, like the Palace of Emperor Galerius. Or there is um, an early Christian church that is still standing, 7th century, and it's still in use. Or there are the walls of the city, dated between the 12th and the 14th century. And then... Um, what civilization would that have been from the walls? What that would have been is the Byzantine or Byzantine. So you've got same. Byzantine, you've got Greek, you've got We've Roman. We've got Hellenistic, that's mm-hmm. where it starts, because Thessaloniki was founded by the successor of Alexander the Great, okay. Cassander, who married his sister, and her name was Thessaloniki. Ah. And he named the city after her. So there aren't any husbands like that anymore. And what's you. the waterfront like in Thessaloniki? It is enjoyable because um, the port is at the side Mm -hmm. of the city, but in front of the historical center is the old promenade, the artificial promenade that was built in the end of the 19th century. It is not very wide, but uh, it is uh, a bit more than a mile long. And then the other end of that promenade is uh, a 15th century tower, which we call the White Tower. And it it used to be part of uh, the fortification of the city, but it has become the landmark of the city. It's the city's museum. And after that is the new promenade, which is very wide with lots of parks and trees exactly next to the water. And it ends at the concert hall of the city. So that's the main place where people go to walk. Now, Anastasia, you're obviously enthusiastic about your hometown. Apostolos, you're not from Thessaloniki. When you think about Thessaloniki, what what comes to mind? How does it rival Athens? And and what's the treats that you would enjoy in Thessaloniki? I think it has to do with the people. The people are really laid back. Uh-huh. And uh, when Thessaloniki comes to my mind, I just think of food. The food is wonderful up there in Thessaloniki. Oh, yeah. Really? So How would it be different from Athens? Because all my uh, travel life, I've been enjoying the food in Athens. I would say they have more uh, special uh, recipes and they, they combine very, very different ingredients. Uh-huh. I, I would say that in Athens, it's more simplified, the food. And mm-hmm. I think it's more, if we can call it, complicated in Thessaloniki. And of course, there, I think... They must have been uh, influenced by by the Balkans in general. Because you're right close to the Balkans. That would be, uh, you know, uh, Macedonia, Bulgaria, Turkey, Thrace. That would definitely affect the cuisine, the local cuisine. Now, Philippos, we're talking about northern Greece. Is that just the north end of the country on the map, or is there a 
How do you define northern Greece? Yeah, it is one of the areas of Greece because Greece, first of all, let's say that there's the Icelandic part, it's okay. the islands, which is almost 14%, and there's 86% of the country, which is mainland. So we divide it into the Peloponnese, which is the southmost part of uh -huh. the, uh, the country. And uh, then we go to the northern part, which encompasses some different administrative areas, which is Macedonia, Thrace, and sometimes we also include Epiros, the place where you find the city of Ioannina. Now, I have traveled enough in that part of the world to know that you cannot just draw a line and say Greeks here and Bulgarians there or Turks here and Greeks here, and you're bordered by Bulgaria and Turkey and Albania mm -hmm. and Macedonia and southern former Yugoslavia. Is there a little bit of culture that spills over? Does it pick up the color of those other countries? Absolutely, and I would say that the northern part of Greece is the one that's more indicative of this blending, because uh -huh. uh, constantly Greece has been a melting pot for the ancient times. But when we go to the period of... Uh, we had the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman occupation, let's not forget that Athens was reduced to a small town. That's right. Athens was down to just a few thousand people. Just the area around So there the, was a time when Thessaloniki was a grander city it than... It never stopped being a very important city, a oh, very okay. important center. For a, for a large period during the Byzantine Empire, it was the second largest city after Istanbul. So this is a country where different cultures collide, they meet. Tell me the different cultures colliding. I want uh, to just the see The Bulgarians, this. the yeah. Greeks, the Turks, the Jewish community, because we had a substantial amount of Jewish people living there. They were unfortunately wiped out in the Second World War. Mm. But this whole blending of the people, the different cultures, the different flavors. And then in 1922, we have the, the Greeks being expelled by Asia Minor. And a large number of these people, they go there. So 1922. Anastasia, let's talk about that. Is that when Turkey decided to get rid of its substantial Greek population? and Greece said, well, you Turks can go back to well, Turkey then and sort it out, or what happened? You could call it like that, but that's a bit oversimplified. Uh -huh. It was the last Greek-Turkish war because we had been occupied by the Ottomans for a very long period of time, so there was a Greek revolution. So let's hold, hold on here yeah. just so our, our listeners understand. An Ottoman uh, invasion or, or conquest would be from Constantinople or Istanbul when it was the Ottoman Empire. It no, took it over conquered. parts of... Istanbul was conquered by uh -huh. the Ottomans and almost simultaneously in the next like six to eight years, the rest was conquered as well. The rest of Greece. What belongs to Greece today, which oh, okay. used to be part of the Byzantine Empire. And we would think of that as... That was the mid-15th century. And that would be like what we think of today as Turkish, the Turkish influence in, yes. in Greece in a simplistic yes. way. Yes. So there's a lot of Turkish culture, Turkish people, Turkish blood in Greece probably because of the Ottoman rule. Definitely. And there was a lot of Greeks on the Turkish mainland. And then after this war in the 1920s, what, the, so what happened? So after the war, there was a treaty signed that defined the borders of the new countries. Mm -hmm. And according to that treaty, there had to be a forced exchange of population, meaning that whoever was Christian, because it did not have to do with nationality. Ah, it it had Christians to do and Muslims. with religion. Okay, you Christians go west and you Muslims go east. Well, you Christians, you can go wherever you want. So <laughs> most of them came to Greece right. and you Muslims go wherever you like. Most of them went to Turkey. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with three Greek guides about northern Greece. Philippos Kanakaris, Apostolos Doras, and Anastasia Gaitanou. And I want to talk just for a minute, Apostolos, about the natural wonders of this place. When you're traveling in northern Greece, what's the terrain like? First of all, as we know, Greece is a mountainous country. 
Mm-hmm. So what is unique is you have like great national parks. Mm-hmm. You have lakes and rivers. You have gorges, ravines. Um, for example, you have the Vicos Gorge in Epiros. The Vicos Gorge. Which, what, what is that like? It is a beautiful gorge. It's about eight miles. Someone, this is V-I-K-O-S. Exactly. Which is like a beautiful gorge. Anyone can hike it. And uh, it is in the beautiful area of Zagori. Zagorohoria, which is like a group of villages. Z-A-G-O-R-I. It's uh, it's It brags that it's the world's deepest canyon, mm-hmm. and it's exactly. like a four-hour hike. Exactly. That sounds like a wonderful day. And then the Zagori area, it's famous for its villages also? Yeah, it's it's a group of villages, like 46 villages. We have like the eastern Zagori, the central Zagori, and the western Zagori. And there's a great variety of villages. There are like 46 with beautiful, uh, wonderful food. Hmm and a unique architecture of uh, stone houses. And, and how scenario. far would this be away from Thessaloniki? Let's say you're going to base in Thessaloniki and you want to go to this gorge and you want to go to the Zagori villages. It would take about two and a half hours. Two and a half hours by car. By car. Now, one of the most famous sites in the north is Mount Athos, the monastery at Mount Athos. And uh, I know Anastasia has not been there because if you did, you'd have to dress up like a man and be yeah. dishonest. Who's been to Mount Athos? I have. Philippos, what is that like? That is very correct what you said. No women are allowed, sadly, because they miss out on a on an opportunity to visit a world which goes back in time when you enter. It's a series of monasteries up there. It's, let's say, our own version of, of the Vatican, meaning that it's like a country within a country, like it is in Italy. Greek Orthodox? Greek Orthodox, very traditional in their ways. No women? No women allowed. No women donkeys? Uh, <laughs> I haven't. I haven't uh, investigated. I've heard, I've heard they're even careful about that. It's <laughs> just they, a man's world. It an, is a, a male world. world. And if you want to cross over there, because it's in the in a part of the northern part of Greece, which is called Halkidiki, uh-huh. and if you want to go there, you go to a place called Uranupoli, uh-huh. and that's where you have a port of entrance, so to speak. Right. And they they do check. It's like a passport control to go there. They allow you to stay in the monasteries for two to three nights. A tourist it, can do this. If of course, as long as they're male. A male tourist and yeah, with, yeah, a, yeah. with a serious interest in respecting this culture, I would assume. Absolutely. And you approach them, you contact them, and you speak to them, and they will allow you to stay for two to three nights. And sometimes you can extend your stay, but just go to a different What monastery. would the experience be if I stayed one day in Mount Athos? It's amazing because if you want to have the full experience, because they will never force you to do things, but it would be amazing to follow the whole uh, itinerary that they follow and the whole diet. They have specific times where they have their meals. Mm-hmm. If you want, you can wake up at about 3 a.m. So you can have this uh, visiting monastic experience if Absolutely. you like. Absolutely. And you can go and attend the Mass, uh-huh. the early prayer, which is at 4 a.m. Uh-huh. And when I went, I had a very surreal experience because I was staying in the, in one of, these, one of these rooms which looked like small cells, you know. And I came out getting ready to go to the service and I saw these monks passing by because the the time was such and I woke up in a very strange feeling, let's say. I saw them walking and they have these long garments that they wear and I felt that they were just floating in the air. And it gave me an amazing experience going. I went inside the monastery, the church, and I attended, attended the mass. And what was really moving was that they didn't have any lights, only the light of the candles. And this created an experience which was a very mystical uh, experience, as if you were attending something that was sacred regardless of your personal beliefs, because it's not about having just a religious experience. It's about experiencing something different, something that's not in the realm of how we understand life. You have just touched something very important. That is, regardless of 
if you believe in God or you go to organized religion or you just raise your hands to the sun or whatever, you can find yourself in places in Europe where you, you feel that spirituality. Iona in Scotland, Assisi in, in Italy, Mount Athos in Greece. Absolutely. And I highly recommend that to the people I know. Sadly, no women are allowed. But I always recommend that to friends of mine, whether they're Greeks or not, that they have to have this experience. It has nothing to do with their personal religious beliefs. It is an opportunity to connect yourself with something that you can experience as divine. It doesn't have a name. It only has an energy. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Anastasia Gaitanu, Apostolos Doras, and Philippos Kanakaris. That was, um, makes me feel a little bit sorry for the women who could not go to that place, but there's lots of other opportunities. Apostolos, uh, women can certainly enjoy Mount Olympus, and that's been a mountain that has been an a important uh, spot in Greek culture since long before there was any Greek Orthodox church. What is Mount Olympus to the Greek people? I think Mount Olympus is a symbol. It's uh, the highest peak uh, of Greece, and it's a beautiful place to go for hiking, climbing, and enjoy nature. And of course, of course, it is connected to the Greek gods, to our mythology, to our culture. So this was uh, in Greek mythology, the home of who? of of the Greek gods, and With this Zeus. Where, exactly this oh. where they used to hang out. And we learned since we were kids at school about. When you, when you look at it, can you see why it must have been considered a special place 2,500 years ago? What, when you look at it, how, how would it cause people so long ago to think it's special? Uh, because it, was, it is a wonder of nature. Because of its altitude and its height, it, it, it would dominate the whole landscape. So people would be scared and also admire at the same time. Philippos, when you look at Mount Olympus, how do you see it? I'll tell you what my first experience was. When I was traveling for the first time towards the north, I was quite young, and I remember approaching with a, with a car. The weather was good, and I remember seeing the clouds up on Mount Olympus. Uh-huh. And I could see a bit above the clouds because they, were, they had descended the clouds, and I could see the, the mountain continue above them. And I remembered all the myths that we had at school with, with Zeus looking above everyone with his thunders, and all the gods eating, you know, ambrosia and uh, drinking the nectar and all those things. So this feeling of seeing the cloud basically fitted like a ring on the mountain. Immediately my mind went to all the stories I've heard from kindergarten, because I had a teacher that would teach us the myths from kindergarten. We didn't know how to read, but we knew everything about Hercules. We knew everything about Zeus. So the first thing I see, I must be 10 or 11 when I do this trip, and I have this surreal experience. For the, My parents were scared because for a, for a brief moment, I st- remained silent. I was Dennis the Menace when I was a kid. So for them, a moment of silence was... Quite remarkable. You yeah. were impacted by that. Yes. In that ring of clouds, it almost made it look like there was earth and there was the realm of the gods. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Anastasia, Apostolos, and Philippos about the many dimensions of culture and history and sightseeing in northern Greece and all of these different cultures and, and centuries upon centuries of heritage. Anastasia, what, what is a, a slice of the story of, of Greek history that we've not talked about in this discussion so far? Well, there's so much, but if one would have limited time, one place that, to which one definitely should go is Vergina. 
That's the name, the today's name of the village that is to the southwest of Thessaloniki, very close to Mount Olympus. But that used to be the place where the first capital of the ancient Macedonian kingdom used to be. And there is also the royal cemetery of ancient times where all the Macedonian kings had to be buried. So in the 70s, late 70s, during the excavations, the unlooted tomb of the father of Alexander the Great, Philip II, was found, and of his son, Alexander IV. Wow, and the it, unlooted tomb. It's, I've yes. not heard somebody say that, but that makes a big difference. If you find a yes. looted tomb, you find some bare walls and, and maybe a few carvings. An unlooted tomb, you find all That's the treasures. That's a rarity. Yeah. And it is very important also because Philip II was, well, he was the most important king for Macedonia, even more, more important than Alexander the Great, right. because without him, there wouldn't be any Alexander the Great. Right. And that was even acknowledged in ancient times. But he was not just a king who changed history, he made history. And a lot of what we are today as Greeks, we owe to him. Philip also, the Great. Philip II. Apart from all of that, that tomb is, so far at least, the second richest unlooted tomb of antiquity that has been found after the tomb of Tutankhamun in Egypt. And where do we find the artifacts and the treasures from that And the artifacts, well, they have done an amazing job because they built a building above the tombs to protect them, but in such a way that everything is exhibited in front of the tombs. It is quite dark in there, not so dark that you can't see, but it's not broad daylight, so it's quite dark to remind people that this is a mausoleum. It's not a museum. It's a place where the world touches the underworld. There's so much. Now, as I opened up this uh, interview, I I said it was kind of for me as well as our listeners, and you've got me inspired. I've got to get over to Greece again and to head north for a change. And may you just say how you could end your day. You return from those tombs where you see all that gold and all that silver, and you go to the Saloniki, and you, you just walk there at the promenade, and then you sit somewhere, you have a coffee, or you have another drink, and you just see Mount Olympus opposite to you. That at the sunset, we have amazing sunsets. From Thessaloniki, you oh, can yeah. see Mount Olympus? Yes, you can. It's very close. And you can be thinking about all the tourist crowds in Athens. And you can try also one of our delicacies, an amazing sweet, which is filler dough and syrup, and cream. We call it the triangle, oh, but yeah. you can't find it anywhere else. And it the tastes name of so that? good. Trigono, triangle. Anastasia, Apostolos, Philippos, Ephedestol. Parakalo. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece, and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.